As a young officer back in the UK, I spent years patrolling the streets to pay my dues, with the hopes that one day I would get to be a detective. Years later, I went to detective school, joined the Child Protection Unit, investigating paedophiles, child killers and other abusers of children. Today I'll be talking to my producer Adam about what it was like being exposed to this type of extensive criminality, the level of empathy the job requires and the psychological effect it can take. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. The one thing in observing detectives that I always am very fascinated with is the idea that a part of your job is potentially the worst day of someone's life, meaning you have to notify somebody's loved one that, you know, they've, they've passed or generally if it's a homicide situation, they've been murdered. But then at the same time, are these people sometimes a suspect? Absolutely. At that point, and look, no one can ever prepare you or give you enough training to be able to go and tell someone that, as you say, their loved one's not coming home ever. But if we have got a case where we don't know, we'll talk about murder, you know, what is the connection? And you have to go in with open eyes and be mindful that maybe the person you're talking to is involved or did commit the crime. And that's a very hard thing to do because you are trying to be there for the person. And obviously you're very considerate of people's feelings, but there's been so many cases that after the event, you know, it's been the husband, the boyfriend, the father, the mother, the, you know, that has committed the crime. And we've seen a number of times where, you know, families who have done this have press conferences and they have tears and they play the role. And then six months down the line, they were the person responsible. And so, (laughs) I mean, this, it's not a joke, but the thing in the police was, you know, if, if a, family member is really willing to come and do a press conference really quick, then they will become a suspect. Because it it was in the UK, I know that there was a a lot of occasions where that was happening. And it was just like, in my mind, it's, again, it's terrible. But to do that, kind of, that's a messed up thing to do. Sometimes that can actually become almost criteria or a way that you would sort of screen somebody as a suspect is their willingness to like sort of be public it's one box maybe that you would check yeah and and looking at how they behave during those press conferences what what's going on behind the scenes now with a a case like a murder you would get a victim liaison officer would be assigned to the family and again many many years ago it tended to be the woman who was on shift Uh, that did change And so you would be the go-between 
for the family and you would be the person who pretty much camped out at their house with them and you would talk to the detective team and your job was obviously to be support to the family but also mindful of what you could pick up or learn while you were in that environment that could be useful to the investigation and again that's something that people don't really understand so you're you're not there as somebody's friend you're there as a support 100% and you do create relationships and friendships when you are in that role it's that's human nature however you have to be mindful of your job also and your job could be that while you're in that family environment you pick up something that will potentially be a part of the puzzle for the investigation so just to kind of to break down sort of the nuance of this because this is the thing that fascinates me is just that dynamic you're essentially showing up let's just say to tell somebody that their husband has been murdered first of all delivering bad news i mean this is this is essentially the worst news this person is ever going to get right provided that they're not a suspect or responsible for it which we don't know would you say in in sort of your approach to that is it jumping into a cold pool do you just want to get the words out so that the person can then react or are you thinking about how you're phrasing it like how in your head are you you know that's a really good question because i think at the time you just go into you've got a job to do and yes you're going to be compassionate and it may not be a murder it could be a car accident it it could be a number of things that that person's not coming home but i think again you've got two police officers standing on your door people say that i have a police a police officer's door knock and i think that often that knock and the the look on our faces stood the other side of the door is actually an an automatic thing that somebody is going to assume the worst and it kind of has that moment breaks our explanation of what we're there for um i can't explain that because it's just something that happens but when you do go and and deliver news like that it does feel like that that knock on the door is the bit where they know what's coming next my first delivery of a of a a death and it was actually a young a young man who'd committed suicide i actually got punched in the face by the mother which is unbelievable but it was her instant grief her reaction right she had actually he'd been reported missing that day so having police officers stand on the door that night kind of was already in her head i assume that you know he's been missing we don't know where he is somebody's going to come and tell us either that they found him and bring him home or he's going to come home or somebody's going to knock and tell us that the worst news possible so i think in that particular circumstance we were there and already in the parents head was maybe that this was bad news and it was a total grief reaction it was like i i am so angry at somebody and i'm the person telling you the worst news possible so the anger was basically came to me um 
and it was it was such a sad sad circumstance um and it wasn't you know there was there was no charges it wasn't anything that anyone took any further and um you know that was how it was but it was like oof wasn't expecting that and i was 19 and this was your first notification my first notification and in the years that you you know had to do this had anything like that ever happened again no no nothing happened again and the the years that you did continue to do that and continue to give that bad news it never got any better it never got any easier it was the sick feeling you know as a human being not as a police officer so take us out of the uniform for a minute we as human beings felt the pain of what we were going to uh, to do and i know that every time you walk to a door you just felt sick like physically wanted to throw up as a police officer giving the news um and that never got any better never and this could be at the, the most random i mean it could be in the middle of the night yeah it could be in the middle of the night and it, it sometimes was i was going to say probably or most often was but uh, no i think it was a split because you know you've got a car accident um kids been driving like a, a lunatic in the middle of the night racing whatever it might be and yeah that's that's also the issue is you knock on a door in the middle of the night two officers somebody's either been arrested or not coming home um and i think that's probably everyone's go to place and uh yeah it's it's a horrible horrible job that police have to do what is sort of your maybe most typical response is it denial is it immediate acceptance i, th I think that there's definitely denial there's you know you don't want to believe what you're being told but we've had every or i've experienced everything from a, a complete meltdown immediately to would you like a cup of tea right like calm and not accepting of that because it, again people behave differently they go into shock and you know their responses are different and um you then go oh that wasn't what i was expecting but let's go with it for a minute um some people want every question answered which nine times out of ten we can't at that point and other people don't ask anything um and again it's a and you know then it's we need to ring so-and-so, we need to get so-and-so here or what, whatever. And um, there's often questions about, you know, was it quick? Was it painful? Was it all of those questions that as a, as a family member, it's, it's, you want it to be the smallest possible pain for your loved one. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's gruesome. Sometimes it's really unpleasant. And you have to, as a police officer, giving that information you have to be very mindful of what information you give and how you give it and that's not you you don't want to lie to these people but you also have to be mindful you know the head was stoved in um the brains were everywhere that's what we see when we get to a scene potentially but you're not going to relay that back in in that manner to the family so it's something that you you have to be mindful and when I was going to deliver a death message, I would play it in my mind what I was going to say and try and be prepared for any questions 
so that I could be tactful but truthful. You get the call. You go to the scene initially. How much time do you spend typically at a scene organizing with sort of the team before you then have to go notify the loved ones? It, it varies. It varies on the case. It varies on the situation. It varies on in the information that we already have or may not have at that point. Obviously, we try to minimize who's at the scene. So it, the detectives will go to the scene, some of them, not all of them. Um, so sometimes you would be working on a murder, but you've never been to the scene. So, I mean, we would like to have some idea of what's happened before we tell the family. But you're also very mindful that you don't want anyone else telling the family first. You know, because again, looking at the investigation, that could be hugely valuable to the investigation if there's information that we need to get firsthand and somebody's already been told. So again, it's looking at the circumstances, looking at um, the investigation, because ultimately it's a balance of doing what's right by the family because they are obviously the people that matter. But doing right by the family also means solving the crime. So you have to have a balancing act of at what point do we tell them? What point do we share information? And again, it's not even on an investigation, it's not that we don't share stuff. It's there's a reason. It's not because we're controlling or nasty or whatever. There's normally a very good reason why you're not sharing various bits of information with the family. And that can be to protect them. It can be to make sure that the investigation's not compromised. So when you look at it from, and it's hard as a family member, they want to know. Nine times out of 10, they want to know everything. And um, that's the role of the liaison officer is worth everything at that point, because it's their job to be the go-between and try and keep everyone happy, but obviously be able to allow the detectives to do their job. At what point do you have to be conscious, if not, you know, the, maybe it's the the entire time, of this person's reaction, how they're sort of taking this information in, engaging whether or not it is typical of somebody that is maybe involved? Yeah, so you are conscious all the time because people change. You know, we know... We know con con men that we spoke about on this show um, that have a certain period where they can be something that they're not, and then you can't keep up the facade. And bearing in mind, a, a murder investigation can go for years. It doesn't, you know, we, we try and solve it as quick as possible, and the chances of solving it, the sooner you do it, obviously you've got more chance. But, um, you know, it can go for years, and people... I, I did a um, a job, it was a murder of two children, two young girls, and I actually wasn't the police officer, I was actually working for the BBC at the time, and we went and interviewed the caretaker of the school, the, the janitor of the school, where the girls went to school. And he did this great thing of, oh, it's devastating. I knew the girls. I would see them walk to school, rah, 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 
we did this whole press release. What a great, he'd seen them that day. And I actually just got, again, gut instinct. And I went back to my boss at the BBC and I was like, I don't trust this guy. I don't know. I don't. And they were like, oh, no, it's, it's fine. He was very, he was great. I'm like, nah, he actually had murdered the girls. And so, but, you know, he'd been interviewed several times. Lots of people had spoken to him. He was super helpful to the investigation. And um, it, it was about just keeping monitoring him the whole way through. And that's also very hard to do. It, it may be that, you know, you have suspects in the family or who are connected to the victim. And at some point, the detectives will say they're not. It's not them. You clear them at a certain point. They'll, yeah. And look, that's not always correct. But then you will probably take your foot off the pedal a little bit because it's like, okay, well, we now got to focus on X, Y, and Z. But I think initially everybody is you're mindful of emotions, but also mindful of the investigation. I think that's how we have to behave as police officers. And now the person that is generally kind of the liaison, are they also sort of on the hook for the case? I mean, is that is that their case as well as maybe their partner that's doing more of the nuts and bolts? So when there's a, a murder investigation, obviously you get a team. It's It's not left to an individual and it's obviously supervised by senior officers and you get your own tasks and your own jobs. And so one of the jobs is that you are, uh, somebody is appointed as the liaison officer with the family. And not everybody can do that because it is a very emotional, very emotional job. You do become very connected to the individuals. You are their support. You are there when they're screaming when they're crying, when they're not getting answers and you're trying to explain what's going on the other side with regards to the investigation. So you are very, very important to the investigation, but in a different way. But you're also a detective. So that's why you're in there and you are picking up on information and, you know, something may be said that's really relevant or not relevant, but you are in a position as a detective to pass that to the actual team that are on the ground trying to find the offender. They would, you know, if you had been a liaison officer for a number of months, then the next murder that came in or the next situation that needed a liaison, and it wasn't just for murders, it was for really serious crimes, then you would probably get given a break from that because it is very, very emotional and, and difficult. In that sort of delicate balance that we're talking about, where you're trying to figure out if somebody is just a victim or, or a suspect, have there been times where maybe you guys gauged it wrong or yeah. maybe somebody was initially a suspect and then they were cleared much later? Or obviously you got to rely on your gut a lot, but what sort of is the track record there in terms of when you go with your gut, does it generally serve you well? Yeah, I think um, by the time you're a seasoned detective, your, your gut is something that we we do not rely on, but we take into account. Um, and it's something, you know, there's, it's like any other trade you learn and experience 
counts for everything as a detective. And I mean, we get it wrong. <laughs> the police get a lot of things wrong, to be fair, but hopefully we get it right eventually. But I worked on a, a child murder and it was a year and it was very bizarre because actually I went back to the, the scene um, just now and I, I hadn't been there for 25 years. So I just been in the UK and there are houses built on this field where the body was found and the body was very badly burnt and we could not work out what had happened and uh, actually eventually we talk about technology and, and advancements the way that that was solved was the grain of soil was actually in the drum of the dryer and that grain of soil could only have been in that field because of the quality of the soil. I'm, not, I'm no soil expert, but only in that field or surrounding fields. It wasn't a very large area. It was a, a field. Um, so therefore, now we've got the soil that was at the scene in the dryer drum at the house of the child who was murdered. So now you're, well, it's somebody in the house. Bearing in mind this had gone on for a very long time and the family had all been suspects at, during the time. They'd all been interviewed. There was a relationship with the police because it'd gone on forever. And now suddenly there's a suspect in the house. And that grain of, of soil solved that murder. And it was actually the stepfather. And he had been incredibly helpful throughout the whole investigation. What transpired eventually was that he had been abusing the young girl and she was about to tell mom. So his option was get rid. And, um, and that, was, that was a case that was solved. And it, it was really strange and bizarre for me only last week because I ended up in the same location and I looked over and there's houses built all over this field and I was like wow you know 25 years ago that was one of the hardest murders that I've worked on and no one knows because they just built a house over there and, and it was a really weird feeling for me knowing what ha had happened there and 25 years on no one cares Another thing that I, I'm always curious about is sort of the work-life balance of these detectives, I don't understand how anybody could do the job. I think it's a job that needs to be done. But in terms of getting a call in the middle of the night, is it a rotation where it's like, okay, I'm up. So if somebody is murdered or if an accident happens, is there a certain amount of anticipation there where you can know when you're going out or is it completely random? So in, a, in uniform, you work... 24-hour shifts, right? Um, and night shifts are, are shitty and no one ever liked them. And when you're a detective, you work up, uh, I, this was how it was. You'd work up till 10 o'clock. So you would do two shifts. You'd either do the morning shift on, or then the 210 shift. And then that would be it. And then what would happen then? You would have what they call the night crime car. So it would be two detectives and you would work a week of nights in the crime car there'd be a supervisor on call. So if anything came in during the night, those two detectives went to it initially, 
would call in this supervisor who was on call but was at home and then they would call in the team. So it initially it would be dealt with by whoever was on call or on duty that night. But then if something like a murder happened, um, we'd all get called in. So it could be three in the morning. And you talk about life, life work balance. Well, as a single mom with a newborn on the major crime unit was very interesting. My daughter got dumped at various people's houses in the middle of the night because mom had to go to work. And interestingly then, and I'm hoping it's different now, is no one actually cared the fact that you were a mom, let alone, you know, a newborn. You know, I understand that because it was my job. But sometimes, oh my goodness, it was hard. It was hard. And I would drop drop her at... at three of the guys' houses because there was no girls available and they it would be like three men and baby. Like they'd have no idea what they were doing, but it was like, I have to go to work now. You can take her to so-and-so's at such and such time because I'm now on a murder. So I could be at work for the next 20 hours, but I'll be in touch. And uh, I don't think it did her any harm. I think she, she turned into <laughs> a very sociable little girl. Very adaptable, maybe. Very adaptable. Yeah. But that was the reality. You want to be on a unit such as this, a specialist unit, which I did. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, but there's no um, room for I can't come in because this, this, and this. And definitely then, you say that as a woman, there wasn't many women in in the department, let alone in the police. There was no way that you would ever say, I'm a mom. I think people will now. And I think obviously the the men are doing it the same as as they should, um, but back then there's no way. The minute you said, "I am a woman, I have a newborn baby, I can't come in to this murder," that would have been it. That would have been well. That's what we said about women, and and that's the reality. So I I do believe and I hope that things have changed now. But yeah, it was it was a very tough. Very tough gig. I never even thought of that aspect of of being a single parent. I just think about how mad the person that was sleeping next to them in bed is at them for <laughs> choosing this career because it's such a an honorable thing, but at the same time, it's like, why did you have to pick this? But somebody has to do it. Yeah, and I think that that's the reason or one of the reasons that the divorce rate is so high because it is very hard to have, especially when you're a specialist in, in an area and you don't know when you, you come in home. And this is, you know, even doing the sex trafficking work now, it's no one knows when you're actually coming home. Um, and so I think that's half of the reason. And it, it's slightly different in uniform because you have – your shifts pattern, you know when you're at work. And yes, you might get overtime because you arrest someone late in the day or, or an incident happens. But when you're on a specialist unit, it it makes it very, very difficult. And I know I was with firearms unit guys over the last few weeks and the things that they do, um, then they were never home because in England, obviously, it's very specialized. There's very few people with guns. So when an incident happens with a gun, they're very 
short supply of who can go. So they were never home at all. Um, And it's tough. It's really tough. Join me next week as I revisit my hometown of Melton Mowbray, the place where I began my career in law enforcement back in the late 80s. We'll discuss some of the most unbelievable cases I've worked over the years, from soccer hooligans to homicide and everything in between. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.